The man stood nervously, peering at the documents before him. His hands trembled. What he was looking at was proof of what he had been warning his contacts at the CIA and MI6 of for months. The Soviets in the West were on the brink of nuclear war. At first he thought it was simply bravado from the Soviet premier Khrushchev. But these documents proved it. It really was Khrushchev's intention to send nuclear missiles to Cuba. Perhaps they were already there. The man knew he needed to act. The fate of the world depended on it. He took the small camera out of his breast pocket and began snapping photos of each relevant page. Suddenly, there was a knock on the door. Comrade Pinkowski. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to our mini-pod series. In each episode, we'll share a short story of a key virtue and the man who exemplified it. Welcome to episode two, The Descent of Oleg Pinkovsky, hosted by me, Jamie Adams. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is dissent. Dissent is the outward expression of ideas and opinions contrary to those held by those in power. This can take on many forms, from protesting political policy to actively trying to counteract them by any means necessary. A dissenter is one who refuses to sit idly by while those in authority take actions they deem to be contrary to the well-being of themselves and the people they love. We've seen a wide range of famous dissension throughout history. The bold abolitionists who fought against the institution of slavery. The brave Germans who refused to extend the right arm and swear allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And the courageous Chinese politicians who spoke out against the policies of Chairman Mao Zedong. In this episode, we will tell the story of a man who stood against another authoritarian juggernaut and whose actions played a pivotal role in quelling all-out nuclear war. As the American army met the soldiers of the Red Army on a destroyed bridge over the Elbe River in eastern Germany on April 25, 1945, there was great optimism of a peaceful future at the end of the bloodiest conflict in human history. Nazi Germany had been toppled. Hitler's Third Reich had been squeezed into capitulation by an ever-tightening vice from East and West. But as human history shows, the main problem at the end of any conflict is what to do with the spoils. 
and as these two burgeoning superpowers shook hands as they soaked in the spring German sunshine, it wouldn't be long before they would be looking at each other with increasing mistrust, suspicion and animosity. By the time World War II hero Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected President of the US in 1953, the USSR had enveloped Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria and Albania, all sat behind the Iron Curtain. That same year Joseph Stalin died and was succeeded by Nikita Khrushchev as Soviet First Secretary. Eisenhower maintained Harry Truman's policy that a firm nuclear arsenal was essential to deter and contain the Soviets. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the Warsaw Pact were both formed as a direct response to the perceived aggression from the opposition and as a collective defense against military intrusion. But the main battlefield of the early Cold War did not involve tanks, troops, or intercontinental ballistic missiles. It often involved a bit of cloak and dagger, something known as espionage. Espionage is the practice of spying or using spies, typically by governments, to obtain political and military information. Essentially, it is spycraft. It was often joked that there was a bug in every ashtray and every restaurant in London during the height of the Cold War. Each major player had their own intelligence agency. Their names are familiar to us now as they were back then. The American CIA, the British MI6, and the infamous Soviet KGB. Succeeding the MGB in 1954, the KGB's job was to carry out internal security, foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, and secret police functions. Essentially, the KGB targeted anyone suspected of dissent or espionage against the USSR, and they had the authority to use any means necessary to put an end to it, up to and including assassination. If caught by the opposing country, the penalty for espionage during the Cold War was life in prison or death. Enter into the story Oleg Vladimirovich Penkovsky. Pinkovsky was born in 1919 in Vladikavkaz, Russia, near the border with Georgia. He served in the Red Army as an artillery officer in World War II and was severely wounded in Ukraine in 1944. After the war he transferred to the Military Intelligence Directorate, GRU. His work took him all over the West as he used his position on the Committee for Coordination of Scientific Research to steal information and technical innovations for the USSR. During this time, Nikita Khrushchev was Soviet First Secretary, and Penkovsky began to question his leadership, worrying that his fiery rhetoric towards the United States would lead to nuclear war. In fact, Penkovsky now secretly labeled Khrushchev a madman. It's 11 p.m. on August 12, 1960. A light rain falls as two American students from Indiana University make their way over the Moskvaretsky Bridge in Moscow. A man approaches the two Hoosiers and asks for a light. They don't have one, but the man continues to follow. After they've passed the armed guards on the bridge, the man begins to frantically plead with them to help him. He says he needs to deliver an urgent letter to the US diplomats. Asking if he was a communist, the man replies, I was. 
The man shoves two sealed letters into their hands and implores them to go straight to the U.S. Embassy and deliver them to an Edward Frears. He then asks them to meet him on the same bridge the following evening to confirm the drop. And then, he disappears into the night. The mysterious man is Colonel Oleg Penkovsky. You may ask, why didn't Penkovsky just deliver the letters himself? Well, because Western embassies in Moscow were guarded by the KGB, not to stop foreigners from coming out, but to stop Russians from defecting. But the two students did deliver the letters, and after reading them, it was clear to US diplomats that they had a potentially priceless asset right at their fingertips. The information Pinkovsky supplied was checked out. Now it was time to make contact. But not wanting to risk a senior agent in Moscow, the CIA sent a junior agent who spoke little Russian and had a bad drinking problem. The results were predictable, but Pinkovsky didn't give up. He contacted a British scientist who had travelled to Moscow with a steel company. The man refused to cooperate, so Penkovsky next persuaded a visiting Canadian geologist to introduce him to his trade attaché. It was no dice again, but word made it back to the CIA and they contacted British intelligence to see if they could land a hand. And this is where Greville Wynne enters the story. Wynne was a bluff British engineering consultant and MI6 had already been keen to use his frequent trips to the east to gather intelligence. Wynne made his way to Moscow in April of 1961 with the purpose of bringing Penkovsky back to London with him, where KGB bugs wouldn't be listening. With top secret Soviet military secrets sewn into his trousers and others stuffed in Wynne's jacket, the pair made it past airport security and met MI6 and CIA agents in the Mount Royal Hotel in London. Yuri Gagarin had become the first man in space just a week earlier. The Soviets were winning the space race, and though it was hard to tell, they appeared to be winning the arms race as well. Much hinged on this meeting. Benkovsky needed them, and they desperately needed him. In the meeting he told them, to be quite honest with you, my disaffection with the whole political system began quite some time ago. The whole setup was one of demagoguery, idle talk and deceit of the people. Penkovsky was master sergeant of a class of 80 students at the Artillery Academy. This afforded him access to a classified library on campus. He would place a chair under the doorknob and copy down secret documents on missile launching systems and guided rockets. Therefore, he already had a plethora of information he was ready to share. Incredibly, Penkovsky even shared a plan with the agents about a plot to bring down the entire Soviet government and military apparatus with small simultaneous nuclear strikes on key targets. Penkovsky wasn't just a detractor who had some information and was willing to sell out his country for a quick buck and a better life for himself in the West. He truly wanted to bring down what a future US president would label an evil empire. He told the agents of his plans, of course, I am sorry for the people, but they have suffered so much already that if they suffer just once more for the sake of a really better future, it would be worthwhile having this war. 
One of the key pieces of information Pankowski provided the intelligence agencies was the height of the Soviets' exaggerated military might, specifically their nuclear arms. This would prove vital knowledge for the US and what would become one of the closest calls to doomsday the world would ever have. John F. Kennedy was elected US President in November of 1960. In the years before his election, revolutionary dictator Fidel Castro had become a close ally of Moscow. The Soviets had began supplying the Castro regime with weapons and armor, a major issue for the Americans, with the Caribbean islands sitting less than 100 miles off the Florida coast. Kennedy's words at his inauguration on January 20, 1961 were perhaps prophetic when he addressed the crowd on the state of the world and the threat of nuclear war. Our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. Before Kennedy's election win, Castro had nationalized Cuba's crude oil refineries which were controlled by U.S. companies. Castro then nationalized most U.S.-owned assets, including banks and Cuba's extremely profitable sugar mills. He even seized control of the Cuban assets of private companies such as Coca-Cola and Sears. The Americans had had enough, and in 1960 the CIA began plotting to overthrow the Castro regime. Planned under the former Eisenhower administration, what would be forever known as the Bay of Pigs invasion was presented to JFK eight days after his inauguration. Kennedy approved the plan in early April, and on the 17th the invasion took place. It was an unmitigated disaster. Of the 1,500 ground forces, mostly made up of Cuban rebels, 1,200 were captured and the rest were either killed or wounded. The defeat humiliated the Kennedy administration and gave credence to the Castro regime's legitimacy. And it was the key precursor for a far more dangerous crisis to come. The Soviets saw the Bay of Pigs fiasco as an opportunity, a strong rationale for placing Soviet troops in Cuba to assist the Cubans in maintaining their national sovereignty. But Khrushchev didn't stop at troops. The Soviets' secret was that they were horribly behind the Americans in the arms race. It is believed that by the early 60s, the Soviets only had 20 ICBMs capable of reaching the US from inside the Soviet Union. In contrast, the US had deployed missile launching sites in Italy and Turkey, capable of striking the heart of the Soviet Union. One obvious way of counteracting this was to place their shorter range nukes closer to the US. But where? The failed invasion of Cuba gave Khrushchev a lifeline in this and in mid-1962, he made plans to level the nuclear playing field. Pinkowski had been suspecting that the KGB were onto him and the British businessmen win, or at least heavily suspicious of his activities and links to the West. He knew he most likely didn't have much time left as an asset, and perhaps not much time left on this earth. But he couldn't stop, not now. The CIA had by now realized something very distasteful was going on in Cuba, as the number of Soviet ships docking in Cuban harbors was increasing. On August 10th, a U-2 spy plane photographed cargo ship movements 
from the Baltic and Black Seas to Cuba. Penkovsky had delivered invaluable evidence to the CIA months before about the Soviet nuclear capabilities, their strategies, and potential plans. And now, it was happening. The Kennedy administration initially resisted the idea that medium-range ballistic missiles were being shipped to Cuba. But on August 29th, the proof came in earnest. The spy plane's camera caught a perfect shot of the indisputable evidence of a surface-to-air missile site in La Coloma. By September, the Americans had sent over 150 ships and submarines to encircle Cuba, and the Soviets put their nuclear arsenal on the highest readiness stage in history. SS-4 missiles were now on Cuban soil and being ready to launch, each with a range of a thousand miles and carrying a one megaton or one million ton TNT equivalent warhead. Hiroshima was leveled by an atomic bomb with a payload equivalent to around 14,000 tons of TNT. Thanks to Penkovsky's photographs and documentation of the SS-4 missiles, the CIA knew exactly what kind of missiles they were and their capability. Without this knowledge, the US may have made a rash move and skipped the diplomatic option. It was estimated that just 10,000 Soviet troops were in Cuba. In reality, the number was closer to 40,000. And with the 270,000 additional Cuban troops, another invasion was out of the question. On October 22nd, Kennedy finally made a public address on the worsening crisis in Cuba. On the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Kennedy chose the least provocative course of action, a naval quarantine, a blockade being legally an act of war. This seemed to be working, but on the 28th, just as Khrushchev was about to publicly offer to remove the missiles from Cuba, if the US would in turn remove its Jupiter missiles from Turkey, a Soviet surface-to-air missile downed an American U-2 spy plane over Cuba, killing the pilot. Kennedy's brother Robert met with the Russian ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin, and the two agreed that if things continued to spiral, surely they would lead to an all-out war where millions on both sides would die. Thankfully, cool heads prevailed, and Kennedy agreed to Khrushchev's original proposal. The Soviet leader took to the airwaves and announced that missiles would be removed from Cuba. In return, the Americans made promises to remove their own missiles from Turkey. And just like that, all-out nuclear war was avoided. The Cuban Missile Crisis was over. Rewind six days, and it's early afternoon on October 22nd, 1962. Oleg Penkovsky is walking down a busy street in Moscow. The city is abuzz with traffic, and Russians making their way back to the office after lunch. He had been so anxious and paranoid that everyone was watching him the past few months that he hates walking down the street. But today is different. Today he almost feels like his old self. But as he looks up from the sidewalk, he catches the eye of a man in a long overcoat. The man immediately looks away. 
it's just your paranoia again, Oleg. Relax, he thinks to himself. A moment later, another man in similar clothing turns the corner behind him and starts following him. Was this it? Had his day finally come? His pace quickens almost automatically. Don't panic. Don't panic, he mutters under his breath. He knows he needs to make it to the other side of the street to evade his pursuer. But just as he makes it to the crosswalk and steps into the street, his pursuer shouts, Oleg! As he turns, a black chica squeals forward from its parking spot along the sidewalk and screeches to a halt right behind him. The rear door flies open, and a man with clenched teeth steps out and pulls him violently into the back seat. The chica then speeds off. His eyes fill with tears as he thinks about his family. Surely he'll never see them again. There is no public record of how Oleg Penkovsky was actually arrested, but on October 22nd, just as the Cuban Missile Crisis reached its climax, he was picked up by the KGB. A few days later, Greville Wynne was arrested in similar fashion at a trade fair in Budapest. The two men were interrogated separately in the Lubyanka, the KGB headquarters in Moscow. The Soviet TASS news bureau finally announced Penkovsky's arrest on December 11th, and the trial finally took place in May of 1963. It was a typical Soviet show trial, where the verdict is already decided. The trial was purely to dissuade anyone else thinking of betraying the regime to think again. In the trial, Penkovsky didn't name any of his British or American contacts. He resolved to protect them at whatever cost to himself. Wynne was handed an eight-year sentence, three in prison and five in a Soviet labor camp. Penkovsky was found guilty of high treason and sentenced to death by firing squad. May 16, 1963. Oleg Penkovsky sits at the wall of his cramped cell in the Lubyanka. Suddenly he hears the guards approaching. The door is unlocked and the two men enter. Not saying a word, they each grab him under the arm and manhandle him out of the cell door. Penkovsky doesn't struggle. He knows that today is the day. He has made peace with it over the past week. He knew the potential cost. He knew what was at stake. He had played a dangerous game and he had eventually been found out. He is brought to the Butyskaya prison in central Moscow and led into the courtyard. All around the courtyard he can see the eyes of the other prisoners watching him. Their fine view of the center of the courtyard is no accident. His hands are bound to a wooden post. As he looks up he can see several men in military uniform with rifles at their sides. This is it Ole, he says to himself. A solitary tear drifts down his cheek as he thinks of his wife and two daughters. But then he steadies himself and stares directly at the man with the rifles. Gatovsya! His heartbeat quickens as the men take up their rifles and load around into the chamber. Silsya! The men raise their rifles and take aim at him. 
Ah, go on! Oleg Penkovsky was executed as a traitor to his country, but he was an asset to the peace and survival of all mankind. Though he loved his country, he knew that betraying his government was necessary to ensure the survival of something he loved more, his countrymen. Penkovsky's descent was a crucial piece of the puzzle that kept the East and West from stepping over the brink and into mutual destruction. Obedience is a vital virtue, but a man must use his discernment to know when those in charge have gone too far and when dissent is the only option. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by me, Jamie Adams, and edited by Scott Einig. The details of this story were taken from Jeremy Dunn's real-life spy thriller, Dead Drop. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a comment wherever you're listening. And follow us on our Instagram page, virtuous underscore man, for more stories of virtue like this one. Join us next time for Moneypod Episode 3, The Loyalty of Gabriel Oak.